all of these dogs and their handlers, they're all, you know, so incredibly bonded. And that's sort of the linchpin of the series. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 68 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. I don't know if you can tell from my voice, but I'm actually getting over COVID of all things, of all times. My husband and I made it all this time over three years and COVID finally caught up to us. So it completely threw my podcasting schedule all out of whack. I've had to reschedule interviews, rejuggle my whole podcast schedule. I gotta tell you, I'm not somebody who likes to dwell and complain on things, but I will tell you that 2023 has been a challenging year so far. I was at least glad that our guy Nino, who we have always called Nurse Nino, was there to get us through COVID. He's so concerned whenever somebody doesn't feel good and he's just so sweet and, you know, he's such a brute, you know, 80, 85 pounds. I always joke that most of that's in his big old pit bull head, but he's just so sweet and gentle all the time, but especially when he knows that you're not feeling good. And it was such a horrible week for him. I know he didn't get any kind of walks or anything. And, you know, he was just so patient and sweet and kind with us and was, of course, like ripping my husband's arm out of socket when he was finally well enough to take him out for a walk again. So today we're going to hear from writer Jen Dana, who writes under the name Sarah Driscoll as her pen name. And, you know, I was just realizing that a little bit of challenge happened with this interview. I've been so fortunate. We are, we're on episode number 68 so far. I've had such minimal technological issues since starting the podcast. But Jen and I had a total... I don't know, technology meltdown. And so we ended up having to do it through Zoom, which is not how I usually record things. But it all worked out in the end. But it was just one of those other challenging things that's that's happened so far this year with the podcast. But before we get further into Jen Dana's story, first I want to tell you about one of my favorite products. I know February was Pet Dental Health Month, but we really need to think about our dog's dental health all year round. I recently learned that 80% of our dogs over three years old have active dental or periodontal disease. And dental disease is actually a sign of other inflammation in the body and can be connected to everything from cardiovascular problems, kidney problems, fatty liver disease, diabetes, certain types of cancers, joint disease, pulmonary conditions. Your dog's dental health actually can affect everything in their body. And you know that I am obsessed with finding the best and healthiest products for our dogs. So I was so excited to find out about teeth. That's right, teeth. Just a tiny spoonful of teeth powder in your dog's water bowl will make a huge 
improvement in your dog's dental health. It's the only thing that ever made my vet stop and go, hey, what did you do with Penny's teeth? They actually look so much better. So forget trying to figure out how to get your dog's teeth brushed without them biting you. Forget those sticks or green shoes. What you need is teeth powder, just a tiny amount in your dog's water bowl. And listeners of this podcast can save 20% on your teeth order with the code ADM. And you'll be on your way to a healthier smile for your dog without any anesthesia needed. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more about teeth and save 20% on your orders. So today we're going to meet writer Jen Dana, who, as I mentioned, writes under the pen name Sarah Driscoll. For over a decade, Jen was partnering with a woman named Ann Vanderlyn to write, and they've combined to create the Sarah Driscoll pen name. Uh, unfortunately, I found out during this interview that Anne very recently passed away very unexpectedly, but Jen is continuing to write the FBI canine series under the Sarah Driscoll name. I've really enjoyed reading these books. It follows a FBI canine handler named Meg Jennings. And, you know, I'm always a little bit girl power when I see books like this. I like to see women who are excelling in male-dominated fields. And we've learned in the past that the vast majority of law enforcement canine handlers are men. So I'm always excited to see a strong, competent woman character in this kind of role. So Jen's going to tell us all about how, even though she's been more of a cat person in her adult life, she's immersed herself into the world of law enforcement canines in order to be able to write these series of books. And I'm just always so fascinated. I'm a huge reading fan. I've been reading mystery novels for as long as I can remember reading all my dad's Hardy Boys books. And uh, I just love finding out where people's inspiration comes from. And, you know, some of these books have a little bit of like a darker storyline. And I'm just like, where does that come from? And what's also fascinating to me is that Jen has a full-time day job where she is a scientist, a virologist, actually, which, you know, she's been a little busy these last couple years since COVID came along. So it was also interesting to learn about her day job as well. This conversation was so much fun, and I'm so excited for you to meet Jen Dana. So we are here today with Jen Dana. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I love your books. Oh, thank you. So I always love to start off by asking about your childhood experiences with animals. So I am not somebody who grew up with any pets. It was totally my husband's idea. I always joke I was a reluctant dog mom, but apparently I'm a dog person. I just didn't know it for the first 25 years of my life. <laughs> so what did that look like for you? Did you grow up with pets? Yes, always. We uh, always had cats. There was always one cat in the household. And then when I was five, we got uh, a black lab. And yes, that is why there is a black lab in the FBI canine series is because <laughs> I had she lived until she was 13. So I was 18 when she passed, uh, which is a good life for a, a black lab. Yeah. And so she was there through all of my formative years. And she was um, run to the litter. So she was, you know, kind of small. And when she was a purebred, and when we got her, we had to sign paper saying that we weren't going to show her, which is fine. We just wanted a family pet. And she was the most amazing family pet. 
So yeah, her name was Shady. <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did you always think, oh, when I, you know, have my own family, I'll have pets and have a dog? Well, I wanted to have pets, but I ended up with with a husband who's incredibly allergic and then kids, two kids who were incredibly allergic. So for a while there, we didn't have any pets. Then we sort of worked our way through a, a series of hamsters and then we got into cat rescue. So cat rescuing is what we do. And my former writing partner, Ann Vanderland, dog rescue was her thing. And she started out with um, schnauzers and then moved into pit bull rescue. And at one point, at one point had five of them. Oh, wow. Well, I'm a big rescued pit bull person. Yeah, that's great. They're fantastic dogs. They have such a bad rep and they are fantastic dogs. And one of her dogs, Kane, she trained to be a therapy dog and when we got into writing the FBI canines, she did nose work classes with canes so that we could really learn sort of the technique of how, you know, scent work goes and what a fantastic dog he was. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I know that you have like a day job. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> oh, okay. Are we allowed to talk about it? Yeah, that's like... fine. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 that's okay. <laughs> So how did you, you know, come about to have like a full-time career and then be writing as well? I I used to write as a teenager. I wrote sort of through my middle school years and my uh, early high school years. And then I sort of let it drop for a long time. I got busy in sort of the upper, you know, the uh, later years of high school, university, met my husband. We got married, had two kids. You know, life gets busy when you're at that sort of point in your life. And then when my girls were about seven or eight. I'd been working in the lab for about 15 years. I got kind of bored and kind of just picked up writing again just for fun and then sort of got the bit in my teeth and then just kind of kept going. So, but yeah, I I trained through university to become a a, a virologist, immunologist. Which has been in the news a lot these last couple of years, huh? (laughs) Yeah, we've had a very busy two and a half, three years at this point. Uh, We saw COVID coming down the pike in about January of 2020 and started writing grants and getting clinical trials ready. And so when everybody else closed in March of 2020, we went into overdrive. So it was uh, it was very busy. I was writing two books a year through all of that. It was the very first time I ever missed a deadline. Oh, wow. Because we were working, you know, sort of 15 hour days trying to get this clinical trial off the ground for COVID. And so I said to my, my editor, I said, I kind of feel like this is a dog ate my homework kind of, you know, excuse. <laughs> but I just didn't have enough time. And she was, I have no idea why any of us are pretending that this is normal. Have two extra months. <laughs> so that was that was that was good. But yeah, so between the writing, I basically have two full time careers between yeah. the writing full time and the working in the lab full time. It's been a crazy it's been a crazy few years. So have you always had an affinity for reading and writing, you know, mystery and crime kind of novels? Yeah, that's always been my thing. And I can, you know, safely say that it was my parents who kind of got me onto that. My dad liked mysteries and spy thrillers. My mom was sort of like the classic Agatha Christie. So, you know, between my dad's, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle and Earl Stanley Gardner's and my mom's Agatha Christie's and, and of course, Nancy Drew sort of growing up. It was, you know, that was all that I sort of read. And I, I don't have a Master of Fine Arts. I have like grade 13 English class from, from the Ontario curriculum. But when you read that much, you learn structure. You learn how to build a book, how to build a mystery or a thriller properly, just because you have sort of soaked it all in and soaked in, you know, the masters. 
Yeah, I uh, I grew up, my dad had like this full collection of like the Hardy Boys novels that were these like hardback blue books. And we just had like rows and rows of them. So I think that's how I fell in love with that. And then uh, like getting into all the John Grisham, because I was like in middle school when those books were coming out. And that was, uh, oh, that was my thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can learn an awful lot just by reading really good writers. I've been uh, I've been a reader my whole life, uh, even longer than I've been a dog person. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so I, I've been reading the FBI Canine series. I have not read your other series yet. Do those also have dogs in them? No, actually, the Canine series is the only one that has the dogs okay. in them. Um, yeah, you try to sort of differentiate them a little bit, and I want to save all my good dog stuff for the Canine series. <laughs> And so you do write with a partner or you were for a while there? Yes. Yeah. So unfortunately, my partner passed away sort of unexpectedly last summer. Um, we had just announced that we were going to get ready to write the eighth book in the series. And we're also contracted for the ninth when she found out she had stage four cancer and unfortunately passed away about a month later. Oh, I'm so, so sorry to hear that. I didn't. Yeah, know. it was very sad. So I have continued on with the series past that. I've just finished writing the, the next book in the series called That Others May Live, and that'll be coming out this coming November. But up to that point, I had worked with Anne and we had written written the, the canine series together, and which was amazing because Anne had all of this wonderful dog know-how. And so she has set me up to continue successfully, I hope, because she has passed on so much of her, her knowledge to me. How did you guys meet? Because it sounds like you're from two different ends of the <laughs> continent. <laughs> well, it's actually kind of a funny story because I was, when I came back to writing, I was just writing for fun and posting stuff online. And um, I'm a gun control loving Canadian and she was living in Texas and owned several guns. And she caught me in a really stupid gun error. And she sent me sort of a private message and said, uh, I hate to tell you this, but you just killed your protagonist. I'm like, oops. And that opened the conversation for us. And so we started going back and forth and then she started beta reading my stuff. And then we started doing some planning and brainstorming together and she would start editing me. And then we just, we started, you know, sort of working together and it just, we really, we clicked really nicely. Yeah. I was curious, like, like, does she write one part and you write the other? Or is it like everybody's kind of working on everything? <laughs> yeah, I mean, all partners do it slightly differently. I do 100% of the writing. So we would do all of the character creation and all of the planning together. I used to say that she used to let me borrow her devious little brain. She had great <laughs> ideas. Um, so we would do the like the story brainstorming characters, plot, all of that together. Then I would draft it and then she would rip it apart and then we'd build it back together you know, together as a, as the two of us, you know, together. So it was, it was a, a process that worked really well for us for, we wrote together for about 10 years. Oh, wow. And this is actually your second series together, right? Yes. Yeah. We started off with the Abbott and Lowell Forensic Mysteries. I really just love the writing style. I mean, I really feel like I'm sitting on behind Meg's shoulder and I'm just like along for the ride. Like I feel oh, like I'm you. just, you know, right there along for the ride and, and just everything with, you know, like it starts off, I mean, just in book one, page one, it's like it starts off like you're on the hunt, you know, like looking for somebody like and you're in the woods and you're I mean, I just it felt like be in my head. It's like being in this movie where you're, you know, right along for the ride. And oh, I thank just, you. I've been sucked. I was sucked in from, from the very first page. Oh, that's <laughs> good. Thing. Thank you. Well, that's what we try to do is like really put you right into the scene. So in the FBI canine series, Meg is the main character and she works for the human scent evidence team. And my understanding is that that's 
they're looking for people. Yes. So they're looking for either, you know, missing, lost, yeah, trying to find somebody that escaped to kind of like So this this is a real unit inside the FBI. So okay. they are the human scent evidence team is part of the larger forensic canine unit. The victim recovery team is also part of the forensic canine unit, but the human scent evidence team, those are live find dogs. So they are, you know, doing tracking, trailing, air scenting, but they are looking for, you know, the lost, the missing, the injured, that kind of thing. And so I would assume then that it's different, uh, like, explosives or things like that or drugs uh i guess that's a different type of team yes absolutely yeah no there is an explosives detection program also in the fbi and that comes in in our first book lone wolf and the book that i just wrote uh we brought back in uh greg patrick and his dog his german shepherd rider who are part of the explosives detection program so there are all sorts of different groups within the fbi just because of the way dogs are trained, like if you have a dog that's trained on explosive, there's trained on thousands of different scents, but within the realm of explosives. Same thing with drugs. They're trained on thousands of different scents, but all within sort of the drug category. So you can get some dogs that are cross-trained, but not normally scent dogs like that. Cross-training of dogs tends to be more when you've got sort of like small police departments who can afford a dog. So you have a dog that's, that can do tracking, but can also do apprehension, that kind of sort of cross, cross training. For these dogs, they are strictly trained on humans, live human scent. So, uh, you know, the 40,000 skin cells that you drop every day and all of the perfumes and antiperspirants and sweat, and blood, and all the things that are associated with, with that, that's what they are trained on. So in still waters, the trick that they're doing there is that they want to learn how to do water searches, which basically means you have to be trained on decomposition, which is a little bit of cross training where the victim recovery team would have that kind of training. But as we sort of say, you know, sometimes if you're doing, if you're tracking somebody over land and the, the trail ends at the water without that training, you're basically, you hit a wall. You're stuck, right? Yeah. You're stuck. So, and like any other group, you know, whatever job you have, you have to have sort of continuing education as part of your job. This is their continuing education. It's not it's not just the dogs, but it's the handlers, too. It's a totally different kind of strategy as to how to help the dogs find the scent. So I grew up with uh, my father being in law enforcement. And so, you know, one of the things that I would always hear when there was, you know, like cop TV shows is like, oh, it would never happen that way. You know, like he couldn't even watch that stuff sometimes. So how do you learn? You, you don't work in law enforcement. And, you know, how did you learn like kind of procedurally like that? Oh, the, these are the terms and these are the teams and these are what these dogs do. How do you learn all that? Well, a lot of there's a lot of research that goes into it. For a lot of the police procedure, I learned a lot of it when we were doing the Abbott and Lowell Forensic Mysteries. I went down to Massachusetts, which is where the books are set, and I met with the Essex uh, homicide detectives, and they, ha they literally handed me a book of their protocols. They were amazing and wow. you know just so giving and, and they said take it back to Canada to send it back to us in the mail thank you <laughs> so I learned a lot of police procedure that way but as far as the dogs I mean we just we did a lot of research and talked to a lot of people she talked to some some people that she knew because she was so far into the dog world there were some police officers that she met that were canine officers and then everything that she learned 
in in her nose work went a long way to to helping us make sure that we had all the procedures correct because they're officially so they're not FBI agents. The the human scent evidence team handlers are officially civilian consultants with the FBI. So they're not she's ex she's an ex-cop, so she has a bit more of the police procedure sort of background, but they're not the ones doing the apprehension. They're the ones that are are, you know, doing the tracking and the finding. And so it depends on on where they are in storm rising. They're sent out because there's a hurricane. So literally what they're trying to do is rescue and recovery. So it just depends on what on what they're doing. Yeah, and I like how, you know, each book kind of has a different focus and gets into like a different kind of, you know, whether it's domestic terrorism or, you know, incels or human trafficking, you know, and, and I was, I was thinking to myself at one point, I hope she watches like cute cat videos before she goes to bed or something and doesn't have all this like (laughs) in her mind all the time. Well, so I would say that if anybody looked at my, my browser history, I could be in big trouble uh, (laughs) just because of all the research that I do. Cause yeah, I mean, it has to be a federal case. That is one of the challenges with this series is that you not only have to have a case that would involve the dogs and you want to not make it so that the dogs are in the first scene and then you don't see them again you need them involved through the entire book but it has to be a federal case so often those are the really bad things like human trafficking uh how do you come up you know with these ideas like or, like it, it seems like some of it seems like a little dark you know <laughs> like how do you get yes. there how do you get yeah. yourself to go there no that is true i mean sometimes it's real life i can give you the example of the book that i just finished that others may live when Champlain Tower South, the condo building in mm-hmm. Surfside, Florida, fell in June of 2021, Anne and I watched what was going on there because the very first group that got sent in was the dogs. Yeah. And so we watched it very closely because it was amazing. There were all these people. They just showed up from out of state. They're with their dogs. And a lot of these groups, they're volunteers. They're not somebody who's kept on staff. The call comes out and the volunteers with their trained dogs come out of the woodwork. And so we were watching that. And even before she had passed, we had planned that this was going to be the next book that we would write would be something that would be kind of like this sort of collapse scenario. Not because, you know, we wanted to take advantage of the tragedy that happened, but because we were so impressed with all of the rescue personnel that showed up and put their lives on the line just to try to find one more person in the rubble. So sometimes it's real life that gives you the idea. Um, Sometimes it's just leave no trace has to do with a a bow hunter who is, is killing people, you know, from a large distance. That was an idea. My son-in-law made some comment about, you know, a bow hunting sniper. And I went, what? (laughs) And that's where that book came from. So sometimes it's just somebody makes a comment or you see something on the news or just something pops into your head. Uh, The the tracking that we used in Under Pressure was just literally some idea that came to me because we wanted to use, you always want to use the dog skills. What if instead of, you know, using the dogs to find somebody unknown, you use them to find somebody known they're basically like a homing beacon. And so you can be five minutes behind someone tracking them exactly. And people think that they're, you know, being untraceable, but they're not. These dogs are very skilled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly amazed at the role of dogs in in our lives, whether it is police search and rescue or even, you know, therapy dogs or You know, I was at a, a farm last weekend and, you know, there's like they have like working, you know, farm dogs. And I'm just constantly amazed at, at the role of dogs in our world and in our society and even throughout history. And yeah, 
Well, and that's why we have Kara in the books, Meg's sister, Kara, who has the therapy dogs. And so we see her sometimes in the book that I've just written, you know, during this whole tragedy, they send in the therapy dogs for the families, for the rescuers. So it's nice to see that aspect of the dog world also reflected. Yeah, I I love her whole like family and support system and like her sister's a dog trainer and her family runs a her parents run a rescue and I was just like I want to be in that family. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of animals of all sorts. So one of the things that I think just comes through so beautifully throughout the books is just the relationship between, you know, the dog and the handler. And, you know, just how they really are partners. And I mean, even your own dog can feel like your partner, you know, throughout life sometimes. And and I just think that that's so beautifully reflected. And uh, is that something you like have observed or that you heard stories about? Or how did you get into the inner workings of like the kind of dog and handler relationship? Well, part of it is just my own relationship with my pets. I know how attached you become to them. And now imagine how attached you would be if because these dogs and handlers are together all the time. They're with each other. You know, they work during the day, but then you don't put the dog in a kennel at night and go home without it. The dog comes home with you. It's part of your life. So that bond is just so strong. And that bond is the key to the whole series is it's not just Meg with Hawk, but it's Brian with Lacey. And, you know, so all of these dogs and their handlers, they're all, you know, so incredibly bonded. And that is that's sort of the linchpin of the series is that everything that they do, they do together and they sort of lift each other up. Meg's in trouble. Hawk comes in, Hawk's in trouble. Meg comes in, you know, and as a pair, they, they can really get the job done. You just figure like, I want to do that. (laughs) And it's true. It's how these, it's how these handler pairs work. It has to be that vital connection for them to be able to work as well as they do. So I was also wondering, I was curious if your your day job and your evening job ever collide, because sometimes you'll hear about like cancer sniffing dogs or, you know, things like that. Uh, so if you've ever had those worlds collide in, in your professional life. <laughs> I haven't only because because I write thrillers. <laughs> so it'd be nice to sort of have that. I mean, some of the some of these these dogs, you know, they can smell COVID. They can smell cancer. It's amazing what you can train these dogs to detect, but unfortunately there isn't really a place for it in the thriller series. <laughs> <laughs> and and you don't ever have like dogs showing up in your lab or anything that you're like- No, unfortunately, yeah, I think our health and safety would have a problem with that. But no, we're we're strictly infectious diseases, so we actually don't want them to be anywhere near us. We wouldn't yes. want them to want them to get exposed. <laughs> So when you're writing, I'm just always curious, like how much of yourself or your personal experiences are going into your writing, the characters, like, did you have like a really crappy boss and you named one of the villains after him or something? You know, (laughs) I did did actually do that in one of my early sort of practice novels just for fun. And they always say, don't annoy a writer. They'll kill you in their next book. (laughs) Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's it's sort of interesting. Like I have a critique team of four people who've been reading my books for a long time. And uh, my husband and my daughter, my eldest daughter are two of them. And my eldest daughter will sometimes put a little comment, you know, highlight something and go, literally you. (laughs) So... (laughs) There's, there's there's no way to sort of keep yourself out of it completely. Um, there's little bits of, of, of you that end up sort of in, in characters or there are catchphrases that, that get said. And again, you know, it's something that comes comes out of your mouth. Obviously, not all of it. You'd like to think you're not the, the villain in the story. But yeah, there are bits of you that, that do come out. And sometimes your own expertise is kind of handy 
because if you have some sort of background knowledge that you can sort of feed into one of the characters that 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 can be that could be good. I, I, you know, have been interested in the Civil War in the States for a while and some of the history that has gone into it. And so that got woven into before it's too late, because that was just background information that I sort of had bouncing around in my head that I could use in this book. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like how like all of the chapters will start off with kind of like this little like definition of something and that, you know, is like a loose theme of the chapter that's coming up and I I really I don't I really enjoy that aspect of it I know it's like a small thing but <laughs> yeah oh thank you and that to give credit where credit is due up to this this current book that was always Anne's job she that was the writing that she did in the book was to go out and find the chapter titles and it's actually pretty hard to, to write a whole book and then have to have a theme for 30 chapters that could kind of go all the way across it she always did such a great job at that and it's nice because each chapter title is related it, there's an overarching theme but that each one is related to the individual chapters so it was right. a lot of work for her to do that it was tricky but i think it really kind of adds something to it yeah it does it does i i appreciated that just that little detail <laughs> So do you think you'll ever have a, a dog or be interested in doing like this kind of dog work? Because there is kind of like sport search and rescue or, you know. Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. That's true. I don't have a dog myself. I have two grand dogs. So when my uh, youngest daughter was still living here, we rescued Chloe, who is, uh, uh, I mean, they're all mixes, but she's uh, part pit bull, uh, part Australian cattle dog, part Labrador. Uh, so we lived with, we had Chloe here for about two and a half to three years. She moved out. They now have another great Pyrenees mix rescue. So I have grand dogs who come over all the time and sit on my couch and, you know, I, I love them to bits. They're great. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to have a dog myself with two full-time jobs. I don't, cats are great. They're kind of self-reliant, but who knows? Maybe once I'm retired, I'll, uh, I'll look at getting a dog myself. There's one of the things I, that, uh, you know, because I, I always love this idea, like in my mind, right, of like being able to do this kind of like advanced training, you know, with my dog. But then, uh, you know, when I look at this specific type of work and just realizing kind of like, I don't know, like the survival type situations. I mean, there's a lot of other like skills and and things that are coming along with it that are like so not my forte. You know? Well, and, and you have to have the right dog because the amount of drive these dogs have to have to be able to do what they do. And maybe you don't need the same amount of drive for search and rescue as you do for aggression, you know, for an apprehension dog. You, you still have to have the same kind of drive. You just don't have to have it sort of channeled in the same direction. So it was just, I mean, Shades was a great dog, but there was just no way I could have done search and rescue with her. Like she just wasn't that kind of dog. So it's not only finding the right person, but it's the match with the right temperament and drive of animal to be able to be really successful. But if you have a high energy dog, like a Belgian Malinois or a lot of, you know, a, a lot of shepherds, they're, they're great for this kind of work. And then to like take it a step further of like the person who is able to do all of the skills that are needed for the person to be able to do too. Like, I feel like it's amazing that we have as many of these people that we do in the world because it's like such yeah. a specific combination of. Well, and to, and to have the flexibility, because as I said, a lot of these search and rescue people, they are volunteers. So when something happens, they just drop everything and go. So you have to also have that kind of flexibility in your life to be able to do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book or scenario that you've written? In the series? Yeah, I keep coming back to the second one before it's too late. I love the Civil War aspect of it. But more than that, I love the group ensemble of the group. 
mm-hmm. or of, the, of the, the series. And that's really where it's sort of like an Avengers Assemble kind of book. That's where the, 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 the team really kind of gels and, and that sort of sets up the rest of the series. And uh, and so what's next? What's what's coming down the pike? You said you just finished writing the eighth book. Yes. So I finished writing the eighth book. So that comes out in November of this year. Uh, we're, I'm contracted for the ninth. That will be November of the following year. And then I have some standalone books that I'm, I'm going to be writing. So. So, yeah, lots of lots more books coming. And I'm hoping the canine series keeps going. If it's you know, it's Kensington's really happy with it. It seems to be really popular with the readers. So I'd be happy to keep it going. I also hope it keeps going. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, I'm so thankful for your time today. It was great to learn more about those. Thank you. I'm so, I'm so happy to have a, have a chance to talk to you about it. And I'll make sure we have links for everybody in the show notes. Also, I am a big Kindle Unlimited fan. If everybody gets your Kindle Unlimited subscription, you can read the first, I think, six books in the series for free through Kindle Unlimited and then just purchase the new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's great. It's, it's a perfect way to, to be introduced to the series. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So talking to Jen got me interested in the history of police dogs. Obviously, we're aware of working dogs being part of civilization for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. But I was curious specifically about the history of police dogs. And so I did some research online and some of what I found was kind of interesting. So I thought I'd share it with you. So the definition of the use of police dogs in the modern era seems to vary So one of the first things that I found was that it was in London in 1889 during the search for Jack the Ripper that police in London were trying to use bloodhounds to track the scent of Jack the Ripper from the scenes of the crime. But this wasn't like super successful or anything. It's just one of the first more modern uses of police dogs in any kind of capacity other than trying to chase down and, you know, attack people, you know, apprehension type work, which of course, you'll find has a lot of racist overtones, which was sort of upsetting to find and read about when you look at the use of bloodhounds to track uh, runaway slaves and things like that. There's a lot of racist history in the use of police dogs that, yeah, very upsetting. So the next thing it seems like everybody agrees on, and like I said, it was kind of interesting that there wasn't like one good solid history of police dogs in, you know, the modern era. So I was kind of pulling from a bunch of different websites and I'll put some of the links in the show notes if you're interested in in finding out more about this. But uh, it looks like the next thing everybody agrees on is that it was in 1899 in Belgium where a formalized uh, system of training and using police dogs was implemented and instituted. So this always makes a lot of sense to me when you look at it's the German shepherds, the Dutch shepherds, the Belgium Malinois that are most commonly associated with police work. And so it seems like Germany and this part of Europe, France, that throughout the early 20th century, they were using police dogs for things like crowd control. But what's really interesting is it seems like for the whole first half of the 20th century that in the U.S. there really wasn't a super successful 
use of police dogs. Though the military was having more success throughout World War One and World War Two, and of course, I have to mention the World War One story of Stubby the pit bull, Sergeant Stubby, for which there is an amazingly adorable animated film. If you've never seen it, you have to add it to your list immediately. I believe it's available on Amazon Prime. So we're into the 1950s now, and it seems like throughout Europe, they were having more success with training and implementing formalized police dog units. But in the U.S., like I said, they were kind of all over the place. There was nothing formalized. Uh, Different places around the country would try different programs, and most of them were not super successful. And so it's actually my hometown, the Baltimore Police Department, that has what's considered kind of like the first modern canine corps that went into existence in the mid-1950s, around 1956, 1957. And the Baltimore Police Department was considered so successful that it became known as the Baltimore Method. And the Baltimore police were the first to have the handlers take their dogs home at the end of their shifts and become part of like the handler's family, live in their home with them. Because prior to this, dogs either went to a kennel or were just handed off to the next handler for the next shift. So this was particularly fascinating to me because what we hear so much in Jen's writing and when we talked to Jody Burnett last year, that the relationship between the dog and the handler is just is everything. They have to be able to rely on each other, have each other's backs, trust each other, know each other. And it seems like this special relationship was kind of born here in my hometown of Baltimore and kind of got me a little emotional. So I'll have a link in the show notes to the Baltimore Police Museum's history of the Baltimore Canine Unit. And I just had to get a chuckle at a lot of the photos. Basically, any photo that looks like it's from like the 70s or 80s. Now, my dad was not a canine officer, but like they all have that cop look. And I swear, like every picture looks like it could be my dad. And it just really gave me a chuckle. My dad and my uncle are both uh, retired from the Baltimore Police Department. So it seems like it wasn't until the late 60s and really in the 1970s when detection dog work, specifically drug detection dogs, really came into the forefront of police work. And I found this fascinating as somebody who, as a kid, spent a lot of nights watching Nick at Night uh, reruns on television, that the show Dragnet, the original old show from the 60s, actually portrayed a drug-sniffing dog in 1969 in an episode where a dog was used to sniff out marijuana at the Los Angeles airport. So I found that fascinating. (laughs) I'm sure I watched that episode when I was, I don't know, like 11 or something on summer vacation at like one in the morning. So of course, the use of these drug detection dogs has exploded throughout the 70s with the war on drugs. And I actually read a statistic from the FBI that drug detection dogs are currently trained on 19,000 different smells. And again, I'm just constantly amazed at dogs and at all that they're able to do. And it's just even more fascinating to me that it's not just drugs that you know, dogs are able to detect. They are now training dogs to sniff out everything from, you know, firearms, explosives, 
currency, you know, like large amounts of money going through customs or something like that. Electronic devices such as like phones or hard drives. I've heard of this, you know, being used when, you know, there's like horrible people that are like hiding child pornography or something. They'll have USB drives, SIM cards. Dogs can be used to sniff all of these kinds of things out. Or something like a mobile phone as contraband in a prison. I mean, it's really just truly amazing what dogs are able to do. And then, of course, there's what Jen was talking about in her books with the human scent detection. And of course, there's like live human recovery, which could be for something like a search and rescue situation, or it could be tracking, you know, like a a criminal type situation or man trailing. And of course, there's also dogs who sniff out human remains. And that could be something that is, I'm going to use the word fresh, which is probably a little gross, or it could be, you know, remains that have been buried for a long period of time as well. One thing I found is that a lot of the smaller police agencies will have dogs that are cross-trained to detect many of these different things, but maybe they aren't quite as like specialized on each specific area. And then you have, you know, the FBI or larger agencies that will have the dogs who are really specific on one thing, such as like just drugs, just man trailing, uh, just human scent evidence, things like that. So I'll put a link in the show notes to one other episode that I had done last year where we talked to Melissa Stagnaro, and she actually does a sport version of search and rescue that any dog owner can learn. And that was a really fascinating conversation for me. And I had actually gone out and gotten to observe how quickly the dogs were, were finding people in the woods and things. And she talked about how to even get your dog started in something like that. So I thought that was a really great conversation. If you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you check that one out. And the one last thing I wanted to make sure we touched on while we're talking about the history of police dogs is, you know, obviously, like we touched on, it's those shepherdy dogs that we usually think of as the working dogs, the dogs that have been bred to have the really high drive to keep going and going. But it is interesting to me that you can find a lot of other types of dog breeds used in police work, especially in the last you know 10 to 15 years. Of course, I'm the big pit bull person, and I've loved seeing that there are even rescued pit bulls from shelters that have gone on to become super successful police dogs. And uh, that just always makes my heart happy. Of course, you see a lot of like Labradors and bloodhounds and things like that too. I love the idea that Rescue and shelter dogs are being considered for this type of work now when they have that super high drive and that they've opened up their breed requirements in a lot of places too, because I think there's so much that dogs can offer us and it's a really beautiful and amazing thing to see. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. Make sure that you check out the links in the show notes to Jen Dana writing as Sarah Driscoll. Uh, Make sure you check out the FBI canine series. I truly, truly love these books. It really is like you're sitting on Meg's shoulder and just going for this ride. And it's really beautifully written. And I hope that you'll check it out. Like I said, a lot of the books are available on Kindle Unlimited. If you don't have Kindle Unlimited, check it out. It's like $9.99 a month. And there's a ton of books that are included for free that you can check out through the program. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. 
You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.